John chapter 14 is often referred to as Jesus' farewell discourse. In it, he talks of his coming and his going and his intent to prepare a mansion for each and every believer. But as much as I hate to say it, we've likely come to a bit of a misunderstanding about all that. As it turns out, the dwelling Jesus is talking about might actually be a little more like a mobile home. Welcome to episode 19, My Father's House. Well, I'm Greg Hall, and I just thank you for coming back to the podcast. This week, we continue our chapter-by-chapter progression through the Gospel of John, where each week we pick one or two things on which to focus, and this week, I just may ruin your vision of heaven. Well, I say ruin, but I may just be changing it. It may actually be a little more accurate after this week's episode. At least that's my goal. And we find ourselves in John chapter 14, and we're going to be focusing on a little statement right there at the beginning. Let's just begin by reading the first few verses of chapter 14 to get our footing. Verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. These are the words of Jesus. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And that rounds out the first four verses of John chapter 14. And I read to you out of the NASB, but there's an interesting thing that happens if you pull up the KJV or the New King James Version. They render verse two, in my father's house are many mansions. And it's maybe partly due to this mansions translation that we might have misunderstood some things that Jesus was trying to communicate here. Going to mention just a little bit right out of the handbook of the Gospel of John. This is Nida and Newman, a reference that we've quoted from often in previous episodes. They say this about verse 2. There are many rooms in my father's house represents a more natural rendering in the English of the Greek text. The Greek literally reads, in my father's house there are many rooms. The word translated rooms, or dwelling places, or abodes, has occasioned some difficulty. The King James use of mansion here comes originally from Tyndale's translation, at which time the word mansion merely signified a dwelling, and not necessarily a large and luxurious one, as we often think about in contemporary English. They continue, some commentators take the Greek word here, it's monet, to mean a stopping place or a resting place. This theory suggests that heaven is a place of progression with many resting places or stopping places along the way. But it seems better, they say, to seek the meaning of this word in another direction, interpreting it in light of the Greek verb meno, meaning to remain, and so suggesting a permanent dwelling place. So breaking away from Newman and Nida for just a minute, there's a couple things they bring up that I'd just like to unpack a little bit. First, my father's house and mansions. This is a rendering that is in the King James Version and in the New King James Version. 
And it goes back to a previous translation from Tyndale. And the more recent translations have maybe corrected that idea. And where mansion used to just mean a dwelling place, in our modern day culture, it's become something much more than that. And so many of the newer English translations have corrected it and traded out the mansions for dwelling places or a place to live and abode. And the other thing that Newman and Nida were commenting on was this idea of, is this dwelling place some sort of a stopping place or one of many resting places? Is that how we're supposed to think about heaven? And they even suggested, now let's go back to the original Greek verb meno, which means to remain. And so it suggests maybe a more permanent dwelling place. So let's talk just about heaven and our conception of heaven just a little bit. We often come to this passage in John 14, and maybe partly due to this mansions translation that has been brought in from another generation, we've often understood this passage maybe this way. Up in heaven, which is where we think God's house is, there are many big houses or mansions. That's where we will go to live. That's our conception of heaven. We think we are going to go to heaven and to live in mansions in the sky. The problem with that is the biblical idea of heaven in the long term is not something disassociated with this earth. If you go to the end of Revelation, the idea is that we get a new heaven and a new earth. It's a reconstituted version of physicality. And so we will be living back here on this earth permanently. And if this idea of residence or to remain the from the Greek verb meno has a permanent dwelling place understanding, then if this passage is talking about that end state, it would seem that it wouldn't be up somewhere in a heaven realm that he would be talking about living permanently down here on the reconstituted version of this earth, the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not just the King James and the New King James versions of the Bible that have gotten us into this idea of where God's house is up in heaven, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of eternity. Our music has also helped reinforce that concept. There are several hymns and songs that have contributed to this understanding that we're going to heaven and that we'll be living there. I remember a song that I sang as a child named Do Lord. Do Lord, oh do Lord, do remember me. I'll, I'll have you just remember a few of those lyrics. I've got a home. Where is my home, my residence, my abode? It's in glory land that outshines the sun. And where is it? Well, it's way beyond the blue. Do you remember that? It's taught as a little kid that my home is in glory land and it outshines the sun because it's beyond the sun. It's way beyond the blue. And as I grew up, there was another song by Audio Adrenaline. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about even before I mention it. It's a song called Big House, and it goes something like this. Come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can play football, and it doesn't really distinguish whether they mean American football or uh, soccer. Uh, a big, big house. It's my father's house. 
And I think as I read those lyrics, I think, number one, I was misguided. Number two, I think they came up with those lyrics just based on John 14, 2. In my father's house are many mansions. So as we get done with this John 14, 2 statement of Jesus and singing all the songs that we sung as we grew up, it seems like Jesus is saying that he is going away to prepare mansions for us up there in heaven. And we still think this is the place that we're going to live in heaven. And maybe it's not a mansion, but I'm still going to be living up there somewhere. But the question today is, is that the correct understanding? And we're going to just dive back into the text and let the biblical text kind of interpret itself. So let's just take some time and figure out exactly what is and where is God's house. So if we were just to dive back into scripture and just ask the question, where's the location of God's house? We begin in the Old Testament, obviously, and I'd want to take you back to Genesis chapter 28. It could be argued that we should go other places, but Genesis 28 is a great place to start this discussion. It's Jacob's dream. If you remember, Jacob has just really made his red brother mad. And he is departing from his brother to a distant land. And he stops for the night and he has a dream. It's a dream of a ladder set on the earth with its top reaching into heaven. And then in verse 15, God says this to Jacob, Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised you. And Jacob woke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the Old Testament, we get this idea, this concept, that God has places, gates, or areas where he dips into this world. And Jacob came to the conclusion, in fact, he named the place Bethel, which is the house of God, Beit El in the Hebrew. And he came to the conclusion that this is where God dwells, this place where he met me in the dream. Well, as the story of the Old Testament continues, we get house of God language further in as we get into the book of Exodus. And I'm going to be reading just briefly out of Exodus 23 and 25 next. Exodus 23, 17 through 19, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifices with leavened bread, nor the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice fruits from your soil into the house of the Lord your God. And by that statement, they're referring to the tabernacle, the mobile structure that God had instructed Moses to build. It's where the God of heaven dwelled amongst his people. In Exodus 25, there's more offerings for the sanctuaries outlined. And in verse 8, it says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So we get Jacob's idea of a dream and God must be dwelling there because that's where God met him. And then we get the instructions to Moses to build this tabernacle. 
and you're to call it my house because it's where I as God dwell. And then as we get further into the story, Solomon builds a more permanent version of that mobile structure, the temple, and it's in Jerusalem. I'm jumping to 1 Kings 8, verses 10 through 20. And this is where the ark is brought into the temple in its inauguration. And it says, as it happened when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. And in my version on Logos Bible software, I have highlighted all the times in this address that Solomon gives that includes this idea of house, the house of the Lord. It's here in verse 10. It's again in verse 11. Verse 13, I have surely built you a very lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. Verse 16 has house, 17, 18, 19, twice, 20. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, for I have risen in the place of my father David and sit in the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And then there's, in verse 27 of that same chapter, there's that very famous, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? It's a question that Solomon brings up in his inauguration, and his conclusion is, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. The house language continues all the way through the rest of the chapter. And by the time the temple is dedicated, there's no question in anyone's head where the house of God is. It's now in Jerusalem on a mountain. And it's the same understanding coming out of the Old Testament that Jesus observes coming into the New Testament. If you remember back in John chapter 2, it says the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, why is he going to Jerusalem? Because that's where that temple is. It's a remodeled structure of Solomon's, but it's largely the same location and it's the same symbol. And he found in the temple those who were selling ox and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And if you remember, he poured the coins all over the place. He overturned the tables. And then he made this statement in verse 16. Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. But he didn't end there with that idea. He took the symbol and he continued it because it was Jesus's ministry that was going to condemn the old and bring in a new. And so his statement in verse 19 is a continuation of that thought. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And to that, he was speaking of the temple of his body. And it says, so that when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, what the word of Jesus had spoken. So scripturally speaking, when we talk about God's house, or my father's house, as Jesus would say, historically, this is not a place outside of the earth. This is not a place up in heaven in some sort of a spiritual existence. This is a place largely located here on earth. Jacob thought it was where he saw the dream. Moses built a tabernacle. It was a mobile structure. And then Solomon made it a more permanent resonant in one place. And that's where Jesus recognized that same idea when he came to earth. God's house is not up in the sky, way beyond the blue. God's house, biblically speaking, 
is here on earth. It's where he dwells on earth. So biblically speaking, coming into John 14 too, we've been understanding God's house as a place here on earth. What is Jesus talking about? In my Father's house are many dwelling places, if it doesn't mean someplace up in heaven. I'm going to go back to Newman and Nida just out of the handbook of the Gospel of John for a little more clarification on this point. They say this, the verb to remain plays a significant role in John's gospel, and it is natural to see a connection between the noun monet and the verb meno, since both words come from the same stem. This same noun is used in verse 23 in the clause translated, my father and I will come to him and live with him, which more literally reads, we will come to him and make our home, our monet, with him. Hence, they say, the word is best taken in a generic sense, meaning a place of dwelling, since this dwelling is obviously one place within the whole house. And the most natural English equivalent would be the word room. So breaking away from Newman and Nida just for a second, this Greek word monet, meaning dwelling or room, it is only used two times in the whole of the New Testament. And both uses are in this very chapter. And I've already mentioned them both, but let's just put it out on the table right before us. 14.2, in my father's house are many dwelling places, Monet. And then further down in the same chapter, in a further conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, Jesus answers and says to them in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him, make our dwelling with him, make our Monet that person. It does not mean that we're going to make the people mansions. It means we're going to dwell with them. And as mentioned earlier, Monet is the noun form of the verb meno, which is translated to abide. And that is used 13 times in these two chapters, John 14 and 15. So this relationship between Monet and Menno is the same in an English idea of the difference between the noun residence and the verb to reside. You reside in a residence. It's this idea of a similar word taking different forms in the vocabulary to pass along a similar meaning. And it makes most sense to unpack John 14, 2 mansions or dwelling places in terms of how those same words are used throughout the rest of the dialogue that Jesus is having with his disciples. And it's here where I'd like to jump into an article by Scott W. Hahn. He's from the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and he wrote an article entitled Temple, Sign, and Sacrament Towards a New Perspective on the Gospel of John. And it's within that article that he spends a little bit of time in John chapter 14 and the surrounding context. And let me just say that if you came into this podcast episode thinking to yourself that Jesus went away and he is up there in heaven preparing my eternal home and I will someday go with him, whether it's through death or whether he comes first and takes me to go be with him. 
if that's been your perspective and that you're going to spend the eternity in heaven, then this might change your perspective. And that's why we're here. We're here to start rethinking some things that we've thought we already knew about the scripture, but that maybe we misunderstood slightly. And it's not to get rid of something that sounded really good. It's actually to clarify what it is that the scripture is saying. And that's what Scott W. Hahn does in this little excerpt. He, he begins to maybe give us a different perspective on what Jesus might have been saying there. He says this, Jesus is telling his disciples that his departure is necessary to prepare a temple sanctuary for them in which they will dwell with him. And frequently, this is understood in terms of a heavenly eschatological fulfillment. The disciples will dwell with Jesus forever in the temple of heaven. And while an eschatological sense should not be excluded, one must also take into account that in the chapter that follows this, Jesus clearly speaks of the disciples abiding, meno, in Christ even now. In this life, the sense of abiding should not be isolated from the sense of abiding places, Monet, that Jesus will prepare for the disciples in John 14.2. One also must be cognizant of John 14.23, which says, If a man loves me, my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling our Monet with him. Han concludes his thought this way, Thus, Jesus goes to prepare a holy place for the disciples with dwellings for them. But simultaneously, the Father and the Son will come to the faithful disciple and make their dwelling with him. Therefore, John 14, taken as a whole, describes a mutual indwelling of Father and Son with the disciples, a mutual indwelling which is treated at greater length and more explicitly in the vine discourse of John 15, 1 through 17 with its stress on abiding or dwelling. And and now listen to this, how Han finishes. All this suggests that Jesus' promise to prepare a temple in which the disciples shall abide will be realized now, in this age, through the mutual indwelling of the disciples, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The disciples will be constituted a temple by the Spirit, whom the Father and the Son will send after Jesus departs. So Han brings in the only other place that this word is used in the New Testament, verse 23 in the exact same chapter, and he says there's a good chance it's used in the same way both times. That verse says that if anyone loves and keeps Jesus' word, the Father will love that person, and Jesus and the Father will come to him and make their dwelling with him. So if you love Jesus, then Jesus and the Father will come to you and dwell with you. The Father's house has many dwelling places. And who lives in them? The Father does. His house is comprised of many dwelling places, and he dwells in each one. What are the dwelling places? They're believers. This is the explanation of John 14, 2 that Han lays out. And you might ask, doesn't the Bible talk about God dwelling in heaven? 
Well, yes, it does, but it never talks about heaven being his house. His house is always one place. It's here on earth. And throughout the Old Testament, more often than not, it's the tabernacle or the temple. Wherever there's a reference to God's house, it's always a reference to a structure on earth. And now that structure is comprised of individual believers. And we can go to other places in the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 talks about how believers are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. 1 Peter 2, 5, believers are living stones of a spiritual house. 1 Timothy 3, 15, the church, the people are the household of God. Hebrews 3, 6 even says that Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. 1 Corinthians 3.16, the collective church is the temple of God. And in 1 Corinthians 6.19, a passage that's highly misunderstood, it says that your body is the temple. And it's not talking about your personal individual body there. The your is plural. So it's your collective singular body has become a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So we see further on in the New Testament, the idea of God's people, the collective body of individual believers coming together to be the temple, this idea of God's household, the habitation of God's spirit is more fully developed later in the New Testament. But what about just in the Gospels? We've already talked about John 2.16, where Jesus goes to the temple, calls it the same phraseology, my father's house. So John is inviting us to see that phraseology and associate it with the temple here on earth, not a faraway structure beyond the blue. But in Matthew 23, 37 through 38, Jesus has more to say about those in and around Jerusalem, about the city itself. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Jesus in that statement is signifying the end of the earthly temple, the way it had been understood for generations. And he is moving that idea of God dwelling here on earth into a new location. The Father has moved out and now has a new house. And this is what Jesus was describing to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Let me just turn there real quick. If you remember in John 4, Jesus travels to a distant land. It's not physically distant, but it's uh, theologically distant, right? To a well and meets a woman of Samaria there. And it's in that conversation that Jesus offers her living water. And we learn later in John's gospel that that living water that Jesus was offering the Samaritan woman was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus and this woman get in a little bit of a debate. You're not better than her father Jacob, are you? And obviously the answer is yes, but she doesn't know that yet. She's about to find out. And then later the woman summarizes her thoughts and says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet, and our fathers worship in this mountain, and you, plural, you people, say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. That's the temple that she's referring to. And Jesus said to her, now listen to what Jesus says, all the way back in John chapter 4, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you people worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit 
and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And it's that idea that Jesus promotes to this woman in Samaria in John chapter 4 that he then rounds back around with his disciples, and he gives more clues as to how this is going to happen how his death, burial, and resurrection allow for the Spirit to come and make its dwelling in believers, the temple of God. And it's this collective language where many individuals come together to be a part of one thing is found with a lot of different metaphors in the New Testament. And just in the very verse preceding the one we've been looking at, do not let your heart be troubled. Now, let me just break this down. The your there is a plural your and the heart is a singular heart. We can't see that in the English translation, but it's clear in the Greek. Do not let your all's heart be troubled. You all have one heart, and don't let that one heart be troubled. John 14, 2 has this idea of many dwelling places, but one house. In John 15, where we're headed next, we've got this idea of a vine that has many branches growing off it. The branches are plural. The vine is singular. So it's this collective language where many things are brought together into one thing that is common in the New Testament, and it's common within this section of the discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples. So is it possible that we are not to be thinking about something way beyond the blue, some place that Jesus is going to prepare, that the preparation is actually happening here on earth in those that would become dwellings? We are being prepared by Christ's work on the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. That is preparing us, the dwelling places of God. And yes, Jesus is going away to heaven, but that's not the location of the dwelling place. And his departure will somehow prepare God's dwelling. In other words, when Jesus is here, the Spirit dwells in Jesus. Jesus' departure allowed for the Spirit to come to its dwelling, the new temple. And then in John 14, 3, it says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And this going and coming language is again repeated in verse 28 of chapter 14. It says, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. Now I've told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. When what happens? His going away? His coming? It's actually both the going and the coming that would soon happen. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's then that they would truly believe at a different level about what was going on. And it's not talking about a second coming that has yet to play out. It's not talking about a going to a distant place beyond the blue to prepare a place that we're going to go live forever. Jesus is talking in more concrete details about something that would soon take place for the disciples. And it was the infilling of the Holy Spirit that then replicates itself throughout the rest of the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit moves into the Father's house, the dwelling places made ready by Jesus's ministry.
So as we've been walking through this John chapter 14 and 15 and taking a look at the dwelling places of God, I'm I'm thinking now that maybe I'll revisit some of those songs from my childhood and maybe uh, just cover them with uh, slightly different lyrics, something like, uh, come and go with me. I am my father's house. (laughs) It's a big, big house. I'm a big, big house (laughs) that eats lots and lots of food. I'm a big, big house. I'm in my father's house. And that's what this podcast is aimed to do. It's to get us to rethink those things that we thought we could already put on the back burner. And my hope is that today's podcast doesn't drive you further from the podcast, (laughs) but it actually takes you closer into a study of God's word on a daily basis. What can we go back and revisit? What can I read again with a new set of eyes that maybe now gets me a clearer picture as to what it is that I do believe? That's my hope. That's why I do what I do. And that's all I've got for today. (laughs) So just a reminder that at our website, RethinkingScripture.com, you'll find much more about Jesus's teaching to his disciples in the upper room. You can look for it under the Bible Studies tab at RethinkingScripture.com. In the next episode, we'll move further into the discussion Jesus has with his disciples the night of his arrest, and we'll get a lesson from modern-day Israel about ancient vine dressing. Thanks again for listening, and please take some time to rate, review, and recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast. 